right. Yes, goddamn. Yeah, let's do it. Quarantine Comics, and we are in week two of our X Men retrospective. Last retro week, retro retro extive. Last week, we took a look at legendary artist Jim Lee's X Men run in 1991, and this week, we're jumping ahead 10 years to see how the writer Grant Morrison reinvigorated the title for the new millennium. And as always, if you want to share your thoughts or have a hankering for a book you want us to review, email us at qtdcomics at gmail.com. I check that account at a questionable frequency and fervor, and our inbox is so lonely. So lonely. So Grant Morrison's run on X-Men happened nearly 20 years ago, and holy shit, do I feel old. And it also pretty much coincided with the release of the first X-Men movie. Yeah, and as with Jim Lee's run on X-Men 10 years previously, Marvel brought Scottish superstar scribe Morrison on board in an attempt to juice up a title that had lost its sizzle. And boy, did he ever, with the mix of his trademark weird, pop science, armchair psychology, and a provocatively fresh interpretation on the characters and ideas that, frankly, by the early 2000s, were starting to get a little bit stale and a little familiar. So this week, we're going to talk about Grant, what Grant Morrison did that felt so unique and what worked and maybe what didn't. So I'm Roman Segel. And I'm Ryan Joe. And we're two guys who rotted our childhood brains on the paper-thin plots of action-adventure and mutant mayhem, and we still can't get that damn 90s cartoon theme song out of our heads. My brain is still so rotted. Such an earworm. (laughs) (laughs) So, Roman, where were you in your comics reading career when you began Grant Morrison's run on X-Men? So it was the beginning of my professional career, so probably... I didn't pick it up when the issues were coming out. By the early 2000s, I was slowly stopping reading comics because I was finishing grad school. When I got to Cincinnati with my corporate job, I did find a comic shop, but I wasn't reading X-Men at that point. I was actually reading mostly DC writer-driven stuff. And I don't recall what I... Oh, I think I'd read Morrison's Justice League run from a few years prior and remembering what a fresh take it was. And I read an article, probably in Wizard... um, about this guy, this Scottish guy, you know, kind of like Garth Ennis coming in and doing some really weird shit. And so Amazon was a young site at the time. And I remember buying all three hardback editions and it blew me away, not for the obvious reasons, but definitely because I'd never seen the X-Men told this way. And I, I was weirded out by it. So much so that I recommended my best friend should read these issues. And he read them on a visit from Boston and proceeded to take them with him and forcibly make me sell them to him. <laughs> now that those books are out of print, I'm calling you out, buddy. I had to trade paperbacks, the first volume of which apparently is going for $100, which seems overpriced to me. But Well, it's out of, it's out of print because Marvel wants to disavow it ever happening. Yeah, I want to talk about that. But um, yeah, where were you? Where were you when you started? So, yeah, so I kind of mentioned last week that X Men number four in nineteen ninety one was the first comic I remember reading, and I I pretty much read X Men consistently through about nineteen ninety seven. 
I missed kind of the Jim Lee stuff, but I read Andy Kubert's run. Scott Lobdell yeah. was the writer throughout. Andy Kubert and then Jet, Joe Matarero were illustrating. And then I just, and then after Onslaught, I think, the Onslaught saga, I kind of stopped reading X-Men. I kind of got introduced to Warren Ellis, who told more adult stories like Transmetropolitan, and I started reading him. My aunt, my Auntie Pinky, who actually has listened to every episode of the podcast. Shout Hi, Auntie Pinky. Andy Pinky, hey. She gave me Adrian Tomine's first book, 32 Stories. And I oh, kind of got- so that's when I kind of got interested in sort of the indie scene. So I was kind of looking at other stuff around the time Grant Morrison's run had come out. But I had read Grant Morrison's JLA, Justice League of America, and I had read Batman Gothic and Arkham Asylum. So I was familiar more with Grant Morrison than really with X-Men at that time. I had been like three or four years not reading X-Men. And yeah, it is a very, very fresh take on the characters. And for me... The biggest thing that's different at what Grant Morrison does that nobody else really had done is he tries to contextualize how the X-Men fit into the so-called real world. He establishes these mutant subcultures. He's trying to figure out where mutants fit into this, into the, the Marvel universe. And what strikes me is that every other, even though the X-Men, the, the very concept of the X-Men is that, you know, they're hated and feared. For most writers, that's almost like just backdrop. They don't even address that. We I talked last week about Jim Lee and Chris Claremont. They just don't even seem to acknowledge that. Well, it, it's that angle accepted of thing. It's this accepted thing. And yeah, to your point, it's backdrop. You never actually show the world hating and fearing them. You never show acts of racism, acts of violence, et cetera, against them. You just see the occasional like nameless crowd throwing a tomato at them or something and, and in grant morrison's run that hatred pretty much drives everything that happens all of the the drama in in his run of x-men it can be kind of tied to that that fear and loathing that humans have of this of this group of of, of people yeah and you know one thing i also enjoyed about this and i don't know i had kind of quit x-men by this point you know i'd subscribed probably a lot through the andy kubert Scott Lovedell era, and then just kind of tapered off, moved over to DC because I enjoyed those writers more like Mark Wade and stuff. But it felt like a very back to basics approach. So by the time I read it, the X-Men movies had already come out and, you know, Hollywood could literally only afford five characters of CG, CG on screen, but it was a very pared down team. Some of the classics, Wolverine, you know, the mom and dad of the X-Men, Cyclops and Jean Grey. But again, mom and dad were having trouble in this book, which was really provocatively interesting but you know in beast for some reason everyone likes beast i'm like must be the only person who doesn't like beast whoa whoa okay we're gonna have to talk about that yeah no but and it's not that i don't like him it's just people think he's the best thing ever and they must find a way to to ram him into the story but then they introduced emma frost and she'd been around as a character she'd been in modern day x-men and other titles as well like generation x i believe but wow i mean they just kind of rewrote this character and she's one of the few things that stuck around from the grant morrison run oh emma frost is his his conception of emma frost is fantastic she's acerbic she's sarcastic uh she has kind of the best lines she reminds uh, her, her her character reminds me of the grandma from <laughs> this sounds so weird the grandma from downton abbey she always yes. yeah just always gets the edge in so so good and i hate that she has been underserved in the cinema uh, in the film universe of the X-Men. But you don't think January Jones just did a fantastic job <laughs> depicting all the nuances of, of Emma Frost? I'm shocked, Robin. Shocked. What what kills me about that, in all seriousness, casting to a T, 
Jane Ryan Jones is an amazing actress, and it well, was uh, uh, she's amazing in Mad Men. I mean, she's fair, she's, fair, she fair. looked the part. Fair point. Uh, again, my, yeah, that to be fair, that is my only exposure as an actress in Mad Men. The darkness that she brings to that character and the spite that she brings to that character is amazing. But anyway, I've never seen her in anything else until the X Men film, I believe, is Origins, and wasted a wasted character, like even where they put her in the timeline, because introducing. Emma as initially as the home wrecker, but by the end of Grant Morrison's run, you're rooting for Emma. Emma Frost has a, a lot of vulnerability. When you first see her, she's very flip and sarcastic, and she kind of remains so throughout, but you eventually kind of see how that is sort of masking a lot of damage, a lot of emotional damage. Her ability to change into a diamond form, that, that kind of keeps her from feeling any emotion. And you see that there are moments when she does that, when she starts to feel vulnerable. She just kind of turns into this, literally this ice queen. Yeah. She is the home record of Scott and Jean. And again, what I love is how Morrison forces you to flip the script. He starts with the obvious reaction of what is going on. This woman is, I mean, she's the white queen. Look at the way she dresses. Poor Scott and Jean, right? And Again, by the end of the book, you understand that the marriage wasn't working. The one thing Grant did was he, you know, he actually did make one callback to what Scott had just gone through in a previous X-Men book, because your frustration, Ryan, with so many comics is more often than not, terrible shit happens to these characters, and then they hit the reset button. So just prior Mm -hmm. to this book, I believe Cyclops had been like possessed by Apocalypse or some shit like that, right? Like super traumatizing thing. And you kind of see the fallout of that. And by the end of the book, by the time they explain Morse's run and they explain the dissolution of this marriage that Emma and Scott had truly fallen in love, like you understand where Emma's coming from and where Scott's coming from, you understand it. Well, so one thing I so one thing I really like about Morrison is that he always presents a new way of looking at something familiar. And the possession of a, of a of a superhero, I mean, Jesus Christ, that that's like a trope that happens over and over again, you know. Professor X gets possessed, he turns into Onslaught. Jean Grey gets possessed, she turns into Phoenix. And when Scott Summers gets possessed, his powers aren't, you know, aren't based on telepathy or the mind. He's actually incredibly vulnerable to that. And there's actually a moment when he kind of says, hey, I don't have the psychic defenses that you and the professor have. When I get possessed, I feel it and I can't get it out of my head and it, it just affects me. I can't just shrug it off. And I thought that was like a really smart nuance that Grant Morrison put on the very familiar trope of superhero getting possessed by evil entity. And that's a sort of characteristic of Morrison. He always finds a way of looking at something familiar and putting a very strange and unique spin on it, even if well, it's he, very subtle. And he, to be clear, he does it across the board with pretty much all the characters, maybe minus oh, yeah. Wolverine. And post Grant Morrison, the only two things that really stuck, and Marvel tried to wipe away all of them, we should talk through that, but the only two things that stuck was Scott and Emma. Everything else kind of got taken back for the most part. I think Jean's still dead, but you know, whatever. She's the Phoenix. She'll come back. But like, they literally write that on her gravestone. And again, Cyclops and Jean Grey are like Peter Parker and Mary Jane. And dissolving that and making it a new union between Scott and Emma. And frankly, Scott not being the straight man anymore. Scott, honestly, Wolverine and Scott kind of flip. Wolverine's the stable one now. Yeah, Scott literally is the terrorist going forward. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, I, I love, I love that Grant Morrison interrogates that superhero marriage of Scott and Jean Grey. You know, there have always been, as you said, the Mary Jane's Peter Parker sort of pairing, and you never really, 
you know, you just take it for granted. You never ask, why should that pairing work? What in their personalities makes that pairing work? And Grant Morrison actually tries to put that under a microscope and reveals, oh, that pairing just shouldn't work. Beyond Scott's teenage infatuation with Jean Grey, there's really no reason for that marriage to work out. And I kind of love that he dissolves it, that, that these are people who maybe have fallen in love in their teens, but it's just not a relationship, a personality match that can sustain into the character's late 20s, early 30s, however old they are in this in this book. I want to pick your brain about Beast because I actually liked what Grant Morrison did with Beast, but you did not, you're not a Beast fan. Why aren't you a Beast fan? It's, it's, it's not that I hate Beast. It's just, he's arguably one of the least interesting characters to me. He, he's the stereotypical smart guy, strong guy. He's not a compelling character. I feel like so much, it literally the beauty and the Beast story. Oh, I'm ugly. No one can love me. Uh, I don't know. He's just not as interesting. He's surrounded by people that are far more interesting than him. Here's why, yeah, here's why I like the Beast and what Grant Morrison did to him is that he made the Beast deeply, deeply, deeply depressed. But, you know, throughout, the Beast is trying to hide it. He's trying to mask it. The de-evolution of the Beast, in this, in Grant Morrison's version, the Beast looks feline. You know, before he'd just been kind of hairy. And then, so there's this whole thought of him devolving. He's a super smart guy, but he's physically devolving, going from man to ape to, to cat. And that has an effect on his psyche, even though he tries to mask it with jokes. He kind of like almost uses his intelligence and his vocabulary to try to stave off his fear that he is devolving. And there are moments when his depression shines through. You know, he'll he'll tell Emma Frost, you know, hey, I've got a million things on my mind. I can't really deal with your your, your quips, your, your wisecracks right now. And of course, it comes to a head with Cassandra Nova, when she the, the villain who really gets into his head and basically puts all of his fears at the forefront. And then it comes to a head again at the very end of Grant Morrison's run when the Beast is essentially the villain 150 years into the future. So I actually think what Grant Morrison did with the Beast is a lot more interesting than what most other writers do with the Beast. He introduced an element to that character that had not existed before when he's most writers just kind of treat him as this happy-go-lucky, fun-time, hairy guy with Grant Morrison, all of that is just sort of masking an incredible depression. Okay, so this is where I'll agree with you. Historically, Beast was not an interesting character. Grant Morrison made him interesting. So, fair. But I feel like everyone else who wants to play with the character of Beast doesn't do anything interesting with him. I I will admit that I have not been a faithful reader of X-Men since Grant Morrison's run ended, but I will agree that every other version of Beast, he's been mostly like a sidekick and sort of like a, a, just like a fun character. He's a mascot. mascot. He's a mascot. Yeah. He looks like a mascot because he's like a furball and he acts like a mascot because he's super smart and he just like, just like wisecracks, but Morrison's version of him was great. And he's literally, uh, they actually introduced another character, not in this run but called Forge, right? Who literally the mutant who's so smart, he can do anything. And so more (laughs) often than not, and this is classic comic book, the smart guy who can build anything, who can invent and science their way out of anything. And I kind of hate that. I don't (laughs) think every team needs one. Like I kind of want the Marvel universe to only have Tony Stark. That's or not. Sorry, never mind. I only want the Marvel universe to only have Reed Richards. I don't need everyone else to be God level smart and can save the, save the day with his brains. It's a way for the writer to escape 
out of a hole that they dig themselves into. You know, like the villain is so good that he's destroyed everything and there's no hope but the one guy. He builds a magic plot device that can save the world. You know, the other thing I really like about Grant Morrison's run, we talked about challenging the marriage of Scott and Jean Grey, is that he also challenges Professor Xavier's utopic vision and Professor Xavier's strategy as pacifism. He was just like, hey, you know, we're going to get along with the humans. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, that's the right way. And then he invents this, the students, like Quentin. Yeah, led by oh, I, I, I knew you were going to go there. I was going to uh, ask, who is your, your favorite of the new cast? And it's got to be Quentin. That's a Ryan character. Yeah, he is. One of the things that a lot of X-Men writers forget is that the X-Men and Xavier runs a school. And Morrison is very, very conscientious of that. And what I also like about that is that the students have their own agendas. They're different. They have their own personalities. There's a conflict with some of the students who have kind of less attractive mutations uh, compared to, you know, those who look like supermodels. And they have their kind of typical high school dramas, which Morrison kind of sneaks in there. And as part of having their own agendas in mind, you have this Quentin Choir character who basically challenges Charles Xavier's utopic vision. And actually, his philosophy starts to align a lot more with Magneto's, which is destroy all humans. And to me, that felt like very, very realistic. You know, that's something that, you know, if you're running a school, you are going to have to deal with that rebellion. You're going to have to deal with people having ideas that are diametrically opposed to yours. And... The threat of Quentin is that he poses an actual threat to Xavier's vision. And, and I love that. You know, it's, it's a threat from within. It, it shows a side of the Xavier Institute that usually we don't see in the X-Men comics. And so I thought that was like, I thought that was a great character. I thought that was a great storyline. Well, and, you know, these, the special class, so to speak, which is, you know, mostly focused on Choir and his kind of gang of kick users, which is the mutant drug inhaler. But the special class is kind of the tinders, but the spark that lights the match. My, my favorite character, which which is of the new class, was Zorn. And when I read it the first time, the first time I it was we're just going to spoil the hell out of this. So oh, if yeah. you haven't read oh, it, yeah. just turn this off. Zorn is revealed to be Magneto, and I don't know if you know this, Ryan. So we talked about how after Grant Morrison's run, Marvel just kind of retconned back everything he did. Magneto, I think the portrayal of Magneto was pretty terrible, and the fans didn't like it yeah. either. I thought it was comical. I thought it was comical. I, I want to talk about that, but but go on. That, yeah, yeah. That, that's a big point. Well, so something Marvel did afterwards is, because the fans were so angry, is they said, oh, no, 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 that was actually a Zorn. And they bring up there's bunches of Zorns because people like Zorn as well. And so that actually wasn't Magneto, according to Marvel's continuity. According to Grant Morrison, that absolutely was. But I want to bring it back to Zorn. I... Zorn was a character I don't want to say that I fell in love with, but I just really came to like. He was novel. He was unique. He was Chinese. There was a very non-American quality to Zorn that I just appreciated. And he represented the mutants that don't look pretty, that don't look like supermodels. He'd been locked in a prison most of his life. And again, I'm, I'm okay with what Morrison did. But he just ripped away a character, and I feel that I genuinely came to like. So and I love that. Yeah, I love that he did that. I just, I my, literally, my mind, I think, dealt with it with, oh, no, no, he replaced him somewhere. So as I was reading it the second time, I was trying to find where did they switch him? 
when did it happen? Am I still reading Zorn or is this Magneto pretending to be Zorn? I couldn't. Yeah, it was upsetting that it was I, Magneto the whole time. So I love that. You're right. It was upsetting, but that's why I loved it. Because Zorn is such a likable character. He's a character that you root for. And when it turns out that he is a traitor and is in fact... Well, it was an act. It's not even just a traitor. A traitor in an act. I thought that was... That left a huge impression on me. Because then you're like, who the hell can you even trust? And then looking back on Zorn's adventures, you have issues that are dedicated to Zorn. And he's doing things that are characteristic of Zorn, not Magneto. That's almost like Magneto building that con. You know, almost getting into the mentality of Zorn so he can't be found out. And then when it is finally revealed as Zorn, it is such a reversal and such a shock. You know, if Emma Frost betrayed the X-Men, she was traditionally a villain. So you'd be like, okay, she's she yeah, was shady you're anyway. It. You're expecting it, yeah. With Zorn, you're not expecting it. He is he's and you even think you have an origin that but that's all kind of like, you know. Yeah, Magneto literally Magneto when he's like, you know, twirling his mustache, he's like literally how could you not see it? It was so obvious. I made up a town. I made up the whole situation. And so so it's this huge buildup leading to this revelation of Magneto. And then you kind of have like a couple of issues of Magneto taking over. And that is, I will say, a letdown. How did you feel about it? There were times that I found it comical. Literally when yeah. he's like, I think in the Empire State Building being like, why aren't people more excited about this? And Toad's like, they yes. can't hear you. At, at this point in the read, because it's probably 80% of the way through Morrison's run, right? Before the jump to the future. I Here's what I didn't like about it. Cassandra Nova was an instant hit. It was like, whoa, we're going to like go from zero to 60 immediately with this shit. And there were no real interesting villains throughout. So... It was so in theory, everything was building to the Magneto moment to your points about Zorn before the manipulation, everything going on. And I appreciated the comedy of it, but that's not what this book needed. Like the grandeur of what Magneto was doing, flipping the magnetic poles. He tricked all of the other Marvel heroes into Brooklyn. Like it just it wasn't believable Magneto. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Cassandra Nova felt like an existential threat to the X-Men. She would the X-Men felt like they could die phasing her and that's in the first volume and then and then quentin i mentioned him he also is an exist existential threat maybe not to the x-men physically but to, but to, to the, the dream, to the dream, dream. to the dream yes to the dream. yeah magneto you know he does some property damage which for in a superhero comic you know you can destroy manhattan in a superhero comic they'll restore it in the next issue it's never it, it never really feels that impactful and magneto there's never really any doubt that he will be defeated he never feels like the threat that cassandra nova is or quentin is and i think you're right part of that is the comedy but and i was kind of wondering that's what, that's, but that's what grant morrison was doing with everything he did to any of the familiar characters was turning them on their head and, yeah and he he hit a lot of them out of the park with scott with beast with emma with Professor X and, and Cassandra and Quentin, right? But with Magneto, he swung and he missed. But he's yeah. Swung. And I was trying to figure out what 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 Grant Morrison was doing. Grant Morrison is 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 portraying Magneto as sort of this comical figure for a reason. You know, it's not like he didn't think it out. And I, I think this is an example of having a really interesting theme that undermines like the drama. You know, it's sort of like when you write to a theme, sometimes your story just kind of falters because everything you're doing with the story just it's, it's all feeding into this agenda that you're trying to push. And so, like, one of the common things throughout Morrison's X-Men run is this kind of idea of how the X-Men 
are portrayed publicly. You know, you have this whole concept of image, you know, that that's actually this big thing that Professor Xavier is pushing throughout. You know, he wants to create a certain image with the X-Men and the X-Corporation. Like with, with Phantom X, he, he actually says, we all find our dignity where we can, mine is in Phantom X. So there's this idea of using the image to kind of protect yourself psychologically. You know, when Quentin gets into Wolverine's head, he sh- kind of shrugs off the threat of violent retaliation from Wolverine by saying, oh, no, 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 that's just Wolverine's image. So throughout, there's this whole concept of image versus reality. And that's super true with Magneto. You know, you see when he's thought dead, everyone's kind of building these shrines to him. He's brought up as this great villain. There's this mystique, no pun intended, around Magneto and what he represents. And then we literally, finally... literally want a shirt that says Magneto was right. You know, like I would have. Yeah. He, his power is in the image. And when we finally see who he really is, we find he's actually an ineffectual leader. He has this great plan to kind of infiltrate the X-Men. But beyond that, he has no plan. He has to, he basically is a coke addict. He has to use that kick drug in order to amplify his powers to do anything. And he has no way of actually building a society that that functions. I so love, I, I, I love that you called him an ineffectual manager. <laughs> he absolutely is. People are saying, "Oh, people are people are hungry." And you know, he tries to create these rousing speeches, and no one listens. In fact, people say, "Man, your Shakespearean dialogue is like really hard to understand," which I think is sort of like a, a dig. That's a dig at, at Chris like, Claremont. Chris Claremont, <laughs> yeah. But it's actually it's it, but it it makes Magneto weaker, right? Is you're stripping away the mythology of Magneto and showing that he is actually a guy who, who just basically has no idea what to do with all of his power. And that's a cool idea on paper, but when you see it executed as the dramatic climax of this X-Men saga, it's really kind of a letdown. It is. It, it is. And as soon as that's done, we quickly switch over to the far future. And like, I don't mind a good future story. The X-Men are really good. And Grant Morrison liked to, he was literally digging into every trope that the X-Men dealt with. And they were one of the few that really went into the far future in a serious way. I I just, yeah, you're right. It was just such a whimpering letdown. Um, Yeah. Look, so let's talk about that. I guess the days of future past type of coda. Here comes I didn't tomorrow. Like, I, I didn't. Here. I didn't. Yeah, here comes tomorrow. Obviously, a, a, an homage to days of Fu- the days of future past storyline, and I didn't. I didn't like it either. Um, so, so this is. Uh, I want to give an analogy. I the last two volumes. I just. I enjoyed them less. I enjoyed them, but I just enjoyed them less. They're. I think they're Morrison's weakest run. When you reveal that Zorn has been Magneto all along, you've got me. And. Mm. I just don't think Morrison stuck the landing because you literally set up and to Morrison's credit, all of the things he set up, even though he was setting up Zorn and Magneto and potentially the future with sublime and the the drugs and the people who wanted to become mutants and all those sort of things. He resolved all the other threads he was unraveling by that point, literally by the time you get to the Magneto reveal. And during that story, he's literally tying up the threads of Emma of Scott and he, he does tie them up in the future story as well. But for the most part, all the threads are tied. Gene has forgiven Scott. S- Scott and Emma are effectively going to be together. We think, you know, I, and so he just didn't stick the landing. And that's the biggest regret I have about this run. He, yeah. He, here's why I think it didn't work. First off, it's over long. It's four issues. It's four issues. It also feels like a typical superhero action adventure storyline. Whereas everything else felt 
unique. You know, as I mentioned earlier, all of the drama before, all of the conflict before kind of spun off of the X-Men being hated and feared. So it almost that kind of grounded a lot of the 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 stories. And there's oftentimes an existential threat, as I mentioned earlier, with Cassandra Nova, with with what what the X-Men are facing feel like things that can kill them. With the suit with the the future stuff, it didn't it you know, you're kind of reading just to see what happened. It doesn't you're not really tied to any of the characters. Yeah. There are no real stakes. And in fact, that's justified because at the end everything gets undone. So if you were invested, what's what was the point of that? None of that none of it even matters. And what's relatively cheap about it, this this version of his future story, is Morrison for the most part chooses to only play with assets from his run. So, and that's, it's, if you're going to do a future run, you've, what happened? To, I mean, you can't just kill off the Avengers. Or what about all the other X-Men? The only other X-Men that was not for Morrison's run that shows up in the far future is um, the clones of Nightcrawler. It's literally all interpretations of those characters. You know, here's the Beak. Here's the Angel. Here's the Cassandra Nova. It's, here's literally Phantom Max's, like, neuro thing, whatever, right? now in a, a sexy robot form. But in a, in a real far-flung future, it wouldn't literally be the cast of the characters from your run only. There would be a lot of others tied in. And so Morrison had a unique opportunity to do something crazy and fun. But I don't think he did. It felt like the last Seinfeld episode, you know, where they're... Oh, where yeah, they're, yeah. Where they're just like, remember this in Seinfeld? Remember that from this time, this moment in Seinfeld? Remember this moment? And they're just kind of like going over the greatest hits. And that seems to be like what what Morrison's doing. I will say the thing I like the most with Morrison's coda in the future is what happened to the beast. You know, there's a tragedy there because he, he, you know, Hank McCoy is essentially, you know, he, we establishes depression early and, you know, what happens after Jean Grey dies is that he, beast tries to take over the Xavier Institute. The stress just wears him down I think he basically takes kick in order to amplify, you know, to, to basically perk himself up, but gets somehow gets taken over by John Sublime. And then, so it's basically a story of failure of the beast failure and how the beast's failure ended up destroying the world, which everyone's is obsessed. Everyone's obsessed with beast. You didn't need to do it. <laughs> well, you know what? It all comes back to the beast at the, at the end of, at the end of Morrison's well, run. Look, Oh, actually, no, it comes back to Scott and Emma. Literally, when the future is erased, well, they're at the gravesite. But as a villain, you know, he's he's the primary antagonist. I'll, look, I will still appreciate that he swung. He great. What I love about this run, and it's so, and I, it's worth comparing to some of the other stuff that we have reviewed and we're about to review. But Morrison made big swings. He made big bets, and a lot of them paid off. And it sucks that Marvel retconned out some of them, but. Some of them literally reverberated for the better part of a decade. And things like Jim Lee's run and we're about to read Joss Whedon's run are kind of like the J.J. Abrams of the X-Men universe, the familiar hits, the familiar beats. But what Morrison and I got, I cannot wait for you to read Jonathan Hickman's run. I feel like Hickman picks up the baton, not in like character for character arc for character arc, but like the the impetus of. We have to shake off this stodgy old franchise and see what would really happen with these characters in this Marvel universe. Morrison and Hickman make massive swings, and 90% of them deliver. Oh, yeah. I know we've been criticizing Morrison, some of Morrison's decisions, but I think- Yeah, I was, I, was channeling, I was channeling my inner Ryan, really. 
as you should, my friend. Um, I haven't read every run on X-Men, but I think Morrison's run is one of the best runs on X-Men that I have read. And it has staying power, right? 20 years later, it still feels fresh and relevant and interesting versus Jim Lee's run feels kind of stale. You know, I, I can't greatest, imagine. It's the greatest, greatest hits album. Jim yeah, and I can't, I can't imagine going back and reading Onslaught and thinking this shit is, this shit is really holding up. Well, you know, um, here's what's funny. Here's what's funny. It's the gimmick is not in, you know, world bending stuff. Cause Onslaught is world bending. If you think about it, you know, Professor X's psyche crashing the entire Marvel universe, block pocket universes, all this crap. It's when you interrogate the characters. And I think that's what this is actually what happened with me in comics. My falling out of love of comics around the call it two or three years post Jim Lee era was it was about the costumes and the continuity and the superpowers and the battles and the art. It wasn't about drama and story and character. And jumping into a writer like Mark Wade or Garth Ennis or Grant Morrison, these guys interrogated characters. What is at the core of it? Let's twist the screws a little bit. You know, let's real and make you fall in love and hate. And like, these are character dramas that happen to have superpowers, not superpowers that happen to have word balloons. And and this is literally like comics is a written medium about characters. Everything else is window dressing. It's it's great window dressing when they do it well with when the art does marry with the story is kind of we we've talked with a couple of other guests. But yeah, Morrison gets it. And, and I think that's what separates the good from the bad. It's the writers. Yeah, well, it's less, it's less about the pyrotechnics because you, you, tend, you, know, you don't really remember 10, 20 years down the line, the cool splash pages, but you remember the incidents that happened and what drove those incidents to happen. You know, for me, it's like Cassandra Nova. She's such a nasty villain. What she does to Hank McCoy is, is horrifying and tragic. And Quentin, how he tries to undermine Professor Xavier's vision. And even the, the, the betrayal of, of Zorn, the revelation that he's Magneto. All of that stuff is kind of like built on our expectations of the characters and, and, and the subversion of those expectations. So something you said a few minutes ago was it still feels fresh today. Would it still feel fresh today if Marvel had followed through with everything? Because they didn't, right? Grant Morrison laid down a foundation and Marvel chose to erase it effectively. My, again, minus Scott and Emma. And, they, you know, they kept a couple of characters. They did a few different things with Zorn. They did a few different things with Phantom Axe. Quentin Quire becomes, continues to become an interesting character further on. But for the most part, they did everything. So do you think it would be fresh had Marvel kind of stayed the course? That's a hard question because it's so hypothetical. I really stopped reading superhero comics around House of M. So it's it's kind of hard for me to say, yeah, would it be fresh or no, it wouldn't be fresh. So yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know how it would read if what Morrison's, you know, it's kind of what Chandler was mentioning with the Marvel Man where, where some tropes, you know, this might seem fresh at the time and then eventually they become cliches. Um, a lot of what Morrison set down because Marvel didn't follow through with it, never had the chance to be cliches. So, but I, you know, I don't know. So one other thing we didn't talk about at all. There are two really great ish- issues that stick out to me. One, something Marvel and DC were experimenting around with at the time is the all silent issue. So there's one issue mm. where it's like no word balloons. It's all, and it's clearly written, but there's no words, right? But the other issue is Scott Wolverine Scott and Wolverine at the Hellfire Club. 
literally like at a strip club there's a scene with Sabretooth where Sabretooth comes down and has a drink with Cyclops and then Sabretooth and Wolverine hang out in the bathroom at the urinals and it's uh okay so anyway great moment with Wolverine first but second the Weapon X was the number 10 and Captain America was number zero or number one like that was brilliant it was such a coincidental fun thing to do kind of what we'd been getting at earlier one of the things that made morrison's run interesting really interesting was that he's trying to situate where these superhero artifacts fit in the world and that's true with not just with the x-men as an organization but that's also true with the hellfire club what is the hellfire club the hellfire club is an exclusive club where mutants with a lot of money can spend it and there is no fighting there's no, you know, all it's like a gentleman's club. And then same thing with the Weapon X program, or what we thought was the Weapon X program. What is it exactly? Well, it's a sequence of gradually improving, or in theory, they'd be improving super soldiers, eventually spliced with Sentinel technology. So again, that's what I really liked about, about Grant Morrison. He's taking all of this lore that had been building up and had been honestly making X-Men such a baggy, unwieldy, you know, title, trying to streamline it by making everything kind of fit. And putting everyone in biker jackets. And putting everyone in biker jackets. All right. Well, you know, I think next week we're going to get away from the biker jackets, though. But we are going to continue our X-Men extravaganza. Here's what's interesting about it. At the beginning of the Grant Morrison X-Men run, they're like, why are we wearing gaudy superhero costumes? Dude, let's just dress practically and put the logo all over our stuff. And that's what they did. And we talk about how Marvel wanted to undo all of it. But, you know, there's probably a handful of other runs that happen, but the next big writer they bring in is TV famous at the time, Joss Whedon. Fresh off his Buffy the Vampire Slayer run, fresh off his Serenity, what's the name of the show? Firefly run. And they bring Joss Whedon in. And Joss Whedon... Pre-Avengers Joss Whedon? Pre-Avengers Joss Whedon. And he comes in and does a run. So that's what we're reading next. We're reading Astonishing X-Men, a four-volume run by Joss Whedon. The title had been used before, but this was the one that put Astonishing X-Men on the map. And similar to Grant Morrison, it is a back-to-basics approach, but it it's not as weird. It's a lot more mainstream, and the gaudy costumes are back. So get ready. For a I'm, lot looking, of I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's just, it's going to be two back-to-back comparisons of, of X-Men, of, of, of two creators' conceptions of X-Men, kind of pretty much that happened like consecutively. So this will be fun. All right. So I don't know. What are we supposed to say now? <laughs> We're supposed to say that if you have a comic book recommendation, you should email us at qtdcomics at gmail.com. And uh, please... Please subscribe so we can monetize this. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to monetize this anytime soon. (laughs) This is my excuse to read comic books and drink in my basement. Come on, man. (laughs) That's pretty much it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.